The Frog King, part two. So we left off when they just arrived in Italy um, and bus stop shenanigans ensued. But yeah. The bus left us in the Piazza Maggiore, where there was a huge wooden statue in the centre of the square, a cylinder painted in uneven green. The bottom half was featureless, the top carved into the torso of a frog, regal and upright, his lips drawn back in an expression at once benevolent and severe. Two arms crossed at his stomach, four long fingers hanging down from each. Above the half-lidded eyes there was a crown with four prongs. Cables stretched down from the statue's midsection, securing it to the pavement. Wooden barriers marked off a space around it. It would be burned, the man working at reception told us back at the hotel when we asked. It was a tradition. The old year burned at the turn of the new. I remembered something I had seen in a movie, Fellini maybe, a stuffed witch on a pile of kindling and old furniture, the trash of the past, the promise of an uncluttered future. I wondered why we didn't do something similar in the States, where we love to pretend to start afresh, where we love to burn things down. There was nothing like it in Bulgaria either, where New Year's was celebrated at home. Families gathered in apartments, and at midnight they set off fireworks from their balconies. It had frightened me my first year, the sound ricocheting off the walls as the little bombs fell into the street below, where everyone knew not to be. They were impassable for a good half hour. Which was the opposite of clearing away. All over the city the explosions came down, and nobody swept them up. The wrappers and casings littered the streets until the heavy spring rains. It wasn't a traditional statue, the man told us. There was a competition each year, artists submitted designs and the winner had his work displayed there, in the centre of the city, for a week before it was burned. For us the frog is a symbol, the man said. It means poverty, here in... Boulogne? I forgot how you said to pronounce it. Boulogne. In Italy. So it means to burn poverty. You know the crisis is very hard here, he said. The austerity is very hard. It would be good to burn it away. He had apologised for his English, but it was very good, less stiff than he seemed in his jacket and tie. He was young, mid-twenties, a college student in a university town. You should go, he said, it's a party. There will be lots of music and lots of people, and you can watch the fire. It's something you should see. There was so much to see. Too much. I walked around in days of looking. We moved in and out of churches crowded with paintings, huge and smoke-darkened, the ceilings crammed with colour. I got tired of trying to see them. R was full of zeal. He wanted to see everything. Who knows when we'll be back, he said. The dilemma of vacations, the exhaustion of the last chance. Everything became unremarkable. Nothing moved me. It was all a blur of perfection. I wanted to get the bus back to the hotel. I wanted to rest my eyes. But just one more thing, R said, paging through the guidebook we had bought, and he led me to a small museum, a house converted after the artist who had lived in it had died. There were just a few rooms, open and uncluttered, the walls painted mercifully white. It wouldn't take long for R to make his circuit. I followed him, barely looking at the paintings, which were small and unremarkable, remarkable only for their plainness. They were quiet and unambitious. Minor, I thought at first. Still lifes and modern landscapes, interesting mostly for having so little to do with everything else we had seen. 
The painter had spent his whole life in this city, but seemed indifferent to the examples it offered, to the virtuosity and gorgeousness it prized. I find myself looking longer, looking more slowly. I let R walk on ahead. The same subjects appeared again and again, household objects, plates and bowls, not filled with flowers or fruit, but empty, set against a plain background. I stopped in front of one that showed a pitcher and cups, white and grey on a tan surface, behind them a blue wall. Something held me there looking, something made me lean in to look more closely. The cups were mismatched in colour and in shape, the pitcher rose oddly elongated behind them. The whole painting was eccentric, asymmetrical. There was a kind of presence in the painting, I felt. I could sense it humming at a frequency I wanted to tune myself to catch. I liked the seeming naivete of it, the way the simple figures had been simplified further, purified or idealised to geometric forms almost, but rendered bluntly, imperfectly. And the brush strokes were imperfect too, visible, haphazard, the paint distributed unevenly, inexpertly. But that wasn't right. Really, it was striving for something ideal. That was what I felt, the frequency I wanted to catch. What I took at first for blocks of colour, dissolved when I leaned in, were modulated, textured, full of movement somehow. Not the movement of objects, but of light, which fell across them gently and dramatically. But that's not right either. It didn't fall across them. There weren't any shadows. I couldn't locate the light at all, or tell if the scene depicted morning or noon. It was as if the objects emanated their own light, which didn't move from one quadrant of the painting to another, as real light would, but vibrated somehow, so there was a sense of movement and stillness at once. There was a promise in it, I felt. A promise for me. A claim about what life could be. Venice was two hours away by train. Another unmissable chance. We wouldn't stay the night, the hotel in Boulogne was already paid for. We would spend a few hours exploring and then come back. On the train I stared at the fields we passed, which were laid out neatly in lines, I realised I had never seen in Bulgaria. The fields alongside the train from Sofia to the coast were shaggy, inexactly drawn, like the fields I remembered from my childhood. My family's fields in Kentucky, nothing like this clean geometry. I stared at them, hypnotised and turned away only when I felt R's hand on my ankle, calling me back. We were facing each other, I had my foot on the empty seat beside him, and he had hooked his fingers underneath the cuff of my jeans and was stroking me softly, privately, not looking up from his book. But I knew he wasn't reading. He was smiling just slightly, his eyes on the page. He was basking in how I looked at him. Okay, so that's all I've got for today. Tomorrow will also probably be a little bit short, but it's just the way that I could break these little bits up. Um, and even though you just now really coyly asked, oh, I wonder what you could be saying at this ending. Um, I just want to say that I'm so excited to marry you. Like, so excited. And I can't wait for a future together you're smiling at me right now <laughs> you're smiling as if you, like, you can tell what I'm saying even though you genuinely can't see my mouth it's not like you're lip reading me or anything no you're so cute no but yeah no I'm so excited for our future together
love you.